I think that's one Satan must hate, especially because not only does it foreshadow, or not only does it represent new life in Christ, it also foreshadows our own resurrection. Praise the Lord. Satan doesn't have that opportunity. There's nothing for him. I, I suspect he hates the baptism, especially, but that turned into a great time of fellowship as well for us. First John 1 3 calls believers to fellowship with each other, but also with the Father and Son. And the next few verses in that section talk about the fellowship, how it has to be based on righteousness with the Lord. In other words, we can't walk in darkness, but then hope to you know, call ourselves believers and say we have fellowship with him. In fact, if we're walking in darkness, that actually leads to fellowship with demons. So you can have fellowship with the Lord or fellowship with demons. That's according to 1 Corinthians 10.20, how when you walk in darkness, you're actually fellowshipping with demons, something none of us would want to do. And we know from, from verses that there are different forms of fellowship. Um, 2 Corinthians 8.4 is fellowship ministering to the saints. Philippians 1.5 is fel the fellowship of the gospel. Philippians 2.1 is fellowship of the spirit. And Philippians 3.10 is fellowship of his sufferings, and many endure this today, many of the persecuted church, and they endure the fellowship of his sufferings, but they still count it a privilege, and there are, there are examples, certainly food and drink and a number of things like that. Our Sundays and Wednesdays, technically that is a time of fellowship as well as we study the word, pray, everything, communion, all that, that is technically a time of fellowship as well, including our men's and ladies' studies and our home fellowships as well. Uh, things like Maymont, uh, which is something we're going to end up missing as Jackie's mom is having surgery, so kind of a sort of a life or death kind of surgery, so we are going to be heading down, down to see her and to try to really preach the gospel to her. Um, so we'll miss Maymont, but normally we love going over there, and that's a great time of fellowship as well. Also, in May, we'll have, be having folks out to our house to serve, this, serve in this church. That'll be a blessing as well. And then also, uh, possibly a Fourth of July fellowship that may be at our house as well. So different things like that. We try to, try to provide plenty of opportunity for fellowship at this church as well. But going back to think about fellowship originally, if we think about the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. That was the original fellowship where they fellowshiped with the Lord, but when they fell, the fellowship was broken, not only with the Lord, but also each other. As soon as, as, soon as that happened, we know that they started pointing fingers, and, and, uh, and it, it was kind of all downhill from there, as we know. But you see, when the, bro when the fellowship is broken like that on a personal level, you see what happens like with divorce, and, and that's something that's happening a lot in our country uh, with then you look at the next generation, you would hope things would get better, but certainly it didn't. With Cain and Abel, then you introduced murder. And on a personal level, you have murders, hatred, strife, all that. On a national level, you get wars out of that. So that fellowship is broken as well between brothers. You can also have even the fellowship between a mother and a child, as we see with abortion. I remember doing a lot of my medical training up in, up in Philly and kind of the bad parts of Philly training up there and seeing a lot of young girls would come in and they usually already had a couple of children and they would, you know, once they found out that they were pregnant again, I remember their statement. They came in so many times and they said, I want it out. And that was the common, common phrase. They wanted it out. You know, it wasn't a he or a she to them. It was something that they, they just couldn't handle the burden of that. And the fellowship is broken between a mother and a child, and, and 
that's just symptomatic of what we see with the fellowship that, that was or originally broken when Adam and Eve sinned. But praise the Lord, we know that the Lord has a plan for restoration of all these things as well. Praise God. The fellowship would also be restored in the garden. Thank the Lord. Uh, we see in the garden the second time around, we see when, when the fellowship would be restored, we see the second Adam in the garden, which we see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, then he goes to the cross, but then he, he raises from the dead. The second Adam wasn't the pushover that the first Adam was. Praise the Lord. And so First uh, Corinthians 2.8 states that if, they had, if the rulers had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So praise the Lord. The second Adam was victorious. The first Adam fell. The second Adam was victorious and restored all things. You have a deceiver in the garden. That was Judas. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, Judas was the deceiver in the garden. And then you also have a woman in the garden, which would have been Mary Magdalene. Initially, Eve had fallen. How neat it is that Mary would be the first person to find out when Jesus rose from the dead. Mary, all things are restored to you. That Jesus is making all things right after that. So how neat it is. And, and this is never to point fingers or blame Adam and Eve or anything like that because we all would have done the same thing. As human history marches on, we all would have done the same thing. So, uh, But it's, it's neat to see that the Lord had a plan for restoring the fellowship even from the very beginning, including other foreshadowings, including the veil which separated the Holy of Holies. We see that thick veil where a person couldn't just walk in and enjoy a fellowship with the Lord, but when Jesus was crucified, the, the veil was torn. Also, we see the Ark of the Covenant, how the mercy, seats, the mercy seat sits higher than the law. So you have the commandments within the Ark of the Covenant, but then you have the mercy seat sits above that. And the high priest at Yom Kippur would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, and that shows that the, the blood sacrifice, eventually the blood of the Messiah, that would be higher than the law. Praise the Lord. It's almost a covering of the law, basically. For, for where we couldn't keep the law, the, the blood sacrifice made atonement for that. And that's what that's a picture of. If you could please turn to Numbers chapter 18. This is kind of the heart of the matter for me as far as, as, far as, as what fellowship is in, at all times, but in the day in which we live as well, it, it's... It's so important. It's been important all throughout time, but now as much as ever, if not more. And man, this, this is something for you, especially being the high priest of the home. It does apply to everyone, absolutely, but men being sort of the high priest of the home as well as the leaders in the church, uh, this, is, this is something that's just near and dear to my heart, especially as we see the way things are going in the church and our country. Um, this is an area which I think is very important and, and we need to pay attention to. But I'll read the first seven verses. This is from the ESV. I think it reads a little bit more forcefully to help illustrate the point. Verse 1, So the Lord said to Aaron, bearing in mind he's the high priest of Israel, uh, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity con connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard 
over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So I believe this can be applied in a couple of ways. One, to the church but also to the family with the the husband, father being the high priest, but also to the church where we see certain responsibilities designated as well. So it can go both ways. The first thing is, like verse 1 says, we take responsibility and we're accountable. So that, that puts us being the high priest, that puts us in a position of being accountable to the Lord for what ends up happening in the church and in the family. The second thing that we see is that the fellowship, we see the fellowship within the whole tribe of Levi, fellowship together, Aaron being taken out of the tribe of Levi to be the line of the high priests, but then also the entire tribe working together as far as making copies of the law and all the responsibilities that they had. So we see fellowship is also, it's not just hamburgers and hot dogs and things like that, but it's also working together. The key, the basis of the fellowship to the to these gentlemen, the tribe of Levi here and the high priestly line, the basis of the fellowship was the guardianship of the priesthood. It says four times to guard, to guard the priesthood, which is a critical point overall, and I feel it applies today as well, to guard the priesthood of the church. We're, we're entrusted, the First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, kind of the New Testament equivalent of that, say, states that we're entrusted with the gospel. So in terms of that, it, there is a direct pa- parallel, and, um, and I think that's kind of the, the key point that I want to make is that a lot of the fellowship that we do, it's centered around the word, praise the Lord, and that's the way it, it should be, and you see a lot of what's happening nowadays where I get the feeling that the guardianship, really, we're not protecting the gospel, we're not really protecting the name of the Lord, we're not really fulfilling the responsibilities we're called to do. It's important, too, that they state that there, there won't be any outsiders, and the outsiders were put to death. They, they wouldn't be tolerated. For us, it just means that we wouldn't want to have someone who's an unbeliever steering the church or anything like that, but you do see that now. People that are hirelings, you do actually see people who are not believers. You see, see them put in positions of leadership, which, which shouldn't be seen. And so I don't know if you guys are seeing some of the things out there regarding this, but I'm, I'm hearing a lot of different things, and I'll talk more about that later. I'm hearing a lot of terms like um, one thing I've heard recently is churches saying, oh, we're a New Testament church, or we're a red-letter you know, red church, meaning they only follow the words of Jesus, or they, that's what they focus on. They make it sound good, like, oh, we follow the, follow the models in the New Testament. I take issue with that for several reasons. First of all, you don't even need to say it because it just doesn't make sense you know, you see Joseph providing for the people of, e- of Egypt. You see all throughout the Old Testament, you see people providing for other people. So there's no New Testament versus Old Testament in terms of that. I think what it is, I think it's a convenient way of 
not wanting to discuss the kind of that nasty old God of the Old Testament and wrath and judgment. It's a way to kind of get around that. People are trying to avoid that now. Everybody wants to be kind of positive and, you know, just nice warm fuzzies and everything. But the wrath of God is part of the whole counsel of God, which we can't neglect that. So I think that's, that's ultimately, with the little bit of research that I've seen, I think that's ultimately what that's based on. I don't know that for sure, but, but I'm not really impressed with that. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of kind of warm, fuzzy ideas coming without really lacking any substance. I wouldn't want to be accountable to the Lord for just basically cutting away parts of his word and saying, well, that doesn't really apply or anything like that. So, uh, so anyway, I'm seeing a lot of that. I, I see that as a failure of the, the guardianship of the, the church currently. And the last point here is an interesting one about the avoiding wrath. Wrath is bad. Wrath hurts, as we all know. For us, it's discipline from the Lord, chastisement, but wrath actually hurts, and he states that there would be no more wrath upon the people of Israel. So if you don't mind, turning four chapters back to Numbers 14, and we'll, we'll get this figured out as far as what wrath he's talking about. So, and one purpose of, of kind of reviewing this really quickly, you all know the story well, I'm sure. It's, it's regarding in Numbers where the, the 12 spies are sent out. Two are faithful, 10 aren't quite so faithful. They bring a bad report. They didn't believe that the Lord could give them a land. So the, the 10 work the people up into a tizzy. And it's, it's almost comical. It's not meant to point fingers at anyone because I would have done the same thing, I'm sure. But it's, it's kind of a commentary on human nature. And, and some of it is a little bit almost unbelievable to me. But but um, we'll kind of flesh it out a little bit. So the people want to return to Egypt. They say, let us make a captain and return to Egypt. So the first thing that happens there in, in the first few verses of Numbers 14, they say, verse 4, let us make a captain, let us go back. Verse 5, Moses and Aaron straight down on their faces. They, they can't believe it. They're, they're down. They're interceding for the people right, right away. And so... Then Joshua and Caleb, they tear their clothes. They're, you know, they rent their shirts. They're, they're trying to calm the people down and get them from be, prevent them from being so worked up. So that's kind of the scene. You have, you have really four very godly people in front of the whole crowd. The whole crowd is worked up into a, a tizzy about this, not believing that the Lord already gave them the land. So it, it's just kind of a mess here. And what I wanted to point out, the, the whole purpose of this, by the way, is this is how not to do fellowship. This is sort of the anti-fellowship, if you want to call it that. This is sort of, this is sort of the example of just be, being careful of who you're hanging out with, because it can go south pretty badly. But, so you have, you have the four up front, Moses and Aaron on their faces, Joshua and Caleb trying to calm the people down. It's not working. Unbelievably, this blows me away, verse 10, but all the congregation bid them stone them with stones. So th this is where it almost seems comical to me where, where people are ready to, to stone Moses. I just have such a hard time believing that. But you think somebody must have looked at Moses and said, Moses, you're going down. I've got a stone. It's for you. You're, you're going to go down. Or you, Aaron, or you, Joshua, probably not Caleb. I don't think anybody would want to stone Caleb because Caleb seemed like he actually wanted to fight and fight giants, as a matter of fact. I wouldn't want to stone Caleb because 
if you missed, he would come after you and he would, he would settle it. So I'd probably aim for one of the 80-year-olds, so in case you did miss, you can at least outrun him. But just the whole scene seemed, seemed so absurd to me. And yet the Lord is merciful, praise the Lord. Mo, we see the prayer of Moses, it's such a great prayer in verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering, great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And verse 19, pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy and as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So just a great prayer from Moses. And he, Moses Moses is really guarding his priesthood in a sense because he says, Lord, if you do this, the nations are going to see that you couldn't deliver your own people. So Moses, Moses is concerned about the name and the reputation of the Lord, which I, I really love. So he, he basically, he intercedes. He's a great picture of, of Jesus there. And so we see that the people are forgiven. So, so the Lord says, all right, Moses, according to your word, I'm going to forgive them. But here's what's going to happen. And so the, the whole 40 years through the wilderness and the 10 spies are, are punished. So that's very important. Here, the number is only at 10, where the 10 spies are, are punished. And so some time passes. We don't know how much time. But if you could go right to chapter 16, please, to Korah's rebellion. I'm sure you all know this as well. But again, the point of this is to be careful with whom you fellowship. So you have Korah provoking Moses and provoking the leaders to rebel against Moses. Verse 3, why do you lift yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord? So first of all, the Lord had lifted Moses up. Moses didn't put himself there. But that's what he seems to be, that's what he's implying, is why do you lift yourselves up above the congregation? And so, um, so that's, that's what his claim is here. So it's sort of a showdown between Moses and Korah, almost seeming to be a picture of, the Christ, of Christ versus Antichrist. In verse 19 of chapter 16, we see that Korah gathers everyone against them. And you have the entire camp against them a second time. And so, again, the Lord is willing to destroy Moses' intercedes. But in verses 24 through 26, it comes to the conclusion. It comes to a head where basically the Lord tells everyone to step back from Korah and all the leaders. He says, step back. Don't even touch their things. I think there's a very important lesson in this in that there's improper fellowship with the world and some of the things that they, they do, you don't even want to take part in those, in those things. That's what he, the Lord is telling him. He's saying, don't even touch their things. Don't touch their goods. Get away from them. And some, get, sometimes that's a good example for us just to not, not be yoked to the world or its things, not getting, uh, not getting involved with things that you know are, are not honoring to the Lord. So again... The people are punished. This time, instead of being just 10, it's in the hundreds. We don't know how many hundred exactly, but it was 250 of the leaders plus their wives and families, and everything had to go. And it went by the earth swallowing them up. So you see that this is, this is sort of a new thing, so to speak, where the earth actually swallows up the leaders and they're, they're sent, you know, that's it. They're gone. But... Unbelievably, that's not the most amazing part of the story to me. The earth swallowing up people, that's, that's impressive, but that's not the most 
impressive part of the story, the most unbelievable part of the story, because we see in verse 41, it says, on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying, you've killed the people of the Lord. So we see it, this is the third time now, and this time it was just the very following day, and they were mad that they killed Korah and Korah's people. So this time the Lord descends right away, and, and this really is why I would say why, Mo, why the Lord chose Moses and not me, because if, if this happened, I would be pretty much like, just really? We're doing this again? We, we covered this just yesterday. Remember the part where the earth came open and everybody went down? It seems like that would have stuck with you a little bit better. And, you know, so here they are again, and I think that's why the Lord doesn't waste any time either. He's coming right down and he comes to, you know, he basically comes to, to strike down the people. And it's neat because he, he tells Moses and Aaron to step away and they fall on their faces right away and they, they intercede for the Lord. It's funny because I think they're still on their faces, so I don't know if, they're, if Moses is having to whisper to Aaron, but it says they fall on their faces and then Moses tells Aaron. So I don't know if he's kind of whispering to him. He's like, get the censer, get the incense, run and try to, try to stop the plague because the Lord was sending a plague now and it was that much more serious because this was the third time in a row. And so I guess Aaron gets up, he grabs the censer, he goes, bearing in mind he's 80-something years old, this is a very unpriestly act, but that's why I believe Aaron was chosen as the high priest because he's humble enough. You know, he knows lives are on the line and souls are on the line, so he runs and he stops the plague, basically. But you look at the number of people that are killed, 14,700 people besides those killed in Korah's rebellion, so it's a lot more people. And it's also a great picture of the Messiah with with Aaron running in between the people, the living on one side, the dead on the other, other side. That's a great picture. I don't see the Dalai Lama running, dishonoring himself. You know, back in that day, for an old gentleman to run, it was sort of a dishonoring activity. He was supposed to be noble and have just a, you know, very assured presence. And yet here he is. He's, because of the people, he's running trying to stop the plague as fast as possible. So it's very, it's neat to see that overall. You know, he knows that, that souls are on the line. I don't see the Pope or, or any other religious figure at all doing anything like this. So anyway, it's a great illustration of, of choosing carefully who, whom you would choose to, to fellowship with just because, as we know the saying, bad company can corrupt just about anyone. This is also an example why I don't believe in saying we're a quote-unquote New Testament church or anything like this because you're going to be missing a lot if you don't see these, these types and illustrations in the Bible. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So this is, this is something that, as far as the fellowship goes, is very near and dear to all of our hearts, is pouring into the local fellowship that we have here, which I believe is going to become more important as time goes on and as we reach the end. Just I have a feeling we're going to need each other more and more. The godly fellowship, it, rest, it's, it restores the original fellowship, but it's also a small sampling of the fellowship that we're going to have 
and it's an appetizer of our heavenly fellowship when we're all together in heaven, and that's it. That's going to be the end. But I believe that fellowship is going to be more and more critical for survival. The closer to the end that we get, it seems that the institutionalized churches will be um, sort of dissolved in a sense, and it's going to—it's basically going to boil down to groups of believers, and maybe there'll be large groups. Praise the Lord, and maybe maybe things will continue on. I'm not saying that, but you know, it seems to be the potential for the trend is just smaller and smaller groups of believers, but broken up as we're seeing in other countries. At least that's kind of kind of the way it would appear right now. But more, as time goes on, I believe we're going to need each other more and more as well. In Genesis, we see that there was seven. There were seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. The seven years of famine that foreshadows Daniel's seventieth week. So, that's an important thing where we know that there's going to be a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. Amos chapter eight states that there is going to be a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. That's foreshadowed, kind of like where there was a famine back in Joseph's day in Egypt. There's going to be a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. There's going to be a famine, basically, where the word of God just isn't accepted, basically, and it's not taught. And I believe we're seeing the groundwork for that now. And the Lord had Joseph prepare the people beforehand. Same thing what we need to be doing right now. The faithful people are to be gathering the grain, so to speak, which is to be gathering the word of God, and, and our fellowship should be centered on this, basically searching out the right teaching versus false teaching, seeking each other in fellowship, determining truth, unlocking the mysteries. As we know in Isaiah, it says, it basically it says that the end is given, or sorry, the end is given from the very beginning. So there's a lot that we need to know and that we need to study together to try to figure out some of these mysteries that are in the Bible. And like my gut feeling is, and like I'm studying, I have a feeling that the institutionalized, kind of the main churches are eventually going to be absorbed into the sort of the Babylon harlot church. And it's going to be easy to join that church from everything that I see. It's going to be easy to go along with that, to be a true believer and to not go around with whatever this sort of one world religion is, is going to be more challenging, but it'll be the right thing to do. In fact, I could almost bet that it's going to be mandatory to go to church at some point. Do y'all agree that it's going to be mandatory to go to a one-world church because we see that type given in Daniel where with Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, everyone was to go and worship the image. That's a, that's a picture of in Revelation where everyone had to worship the image of the Antichrist. The one is basically a foreshadowing of the other. In a sense, it's like a state-run church where you basically you have to go worship. It's not true worship of the Lord or anything like that, but it's, you basically are going to be forced to, to worship, you know, something, you know, the Antichrist eventually, but um, that's the way it's going to be going, and I think we're seeing the groundwork for that now. Do y'all agree that, that it seems like there's a very ecumenical movement growing, and even in, in supposedly evangelical churches where more and more people are going that route, and it will be easy, but... Um, but still, you know, it's not, not what the Lord has called us to do. My heart's desire is that the church would do well for what's coming. I, I believe we are going to need to be physically, mentally, spiritually strong. I think I'm sensitive to this, just being in medicine. You know, I'm seeing what's happening with 
just the overall population. I just, my point in mentioning this is just that I'm hoping that our whole church can just pour into one another. And I love the fellowship that we did. Like last year, the ladies had very practical applications and on canning and things like that, gardening, stuff, stuff like that, but also, you know, good godly fellowship, but also the word was central to that, and I hope we have more. My heart's desire is that this local fellowship, that we're investing in one another. I was trying to think of a good example. The einkorn is one that I'd, I'd given out some samples of the einkorn, and I love studying the stuff. I love studying, like, how natural nutrition, how the Lord provides all these things. There's so many neat things. I've given out a bunch of samples. If you want some, I'll give you some. It, it, it's, it's like a superfood. It's, it's so good. It's so filling. And um, what I'm seeing in practice, I'm seeing people that are easily on five or ten medications, taking five or ten medications per day. I'm seeing just an outrageous number of, of medications that people are on and just sort of this false reliance on that. And when we do the type of work that, that we do, you know, you get really good at assessing, assessing people, people's overall health, their healing potential, like when we have to cut away with gangrene or something like that, you know, I, I can tell people, you know, that some people I can just tell, you're going to heal, everything will be fine. Other people, you know, I'm not so sure overall how it is. I'm not sure that's going to heal or it just might take longer. And then some people, I'm, it's more like you, you can't just cut into the gangrene. You have to go well above it to make sure that it, it heals. So, you know, you get a good sense for people's overall health and with, I think what's happening is, as the Lord's hand of favor is being removed from our country, it seems like some of the, some of the discipline is coming from the Lord where just you know, people aren't as healthy. That's why I'm excited to see like all the fellowship that we have, just good godly fellowship, preserving our, our overall health. I had a pediatrician patient of mine, so he was my patient. He died several years back. He's with the Lord, praise the Lord. He told me one time, he, he worked as a pediatrician, so kids up to the age of about 20, but he told me in his practice downtown, about 50% of his patients, and this is pediatrics, were diabetic. So 50% diabetic rates, somewhere right around there. So I thought about it for a while, and I actually asked him a second time when I saw him back several months later. I was like, did you actually tell me that close to 50% of your pediatric patients were diabetic? And he said, yep, that's right. And so it just makes me think, what is happening to our country? What's happening to our children? That's why I'm glad to see us fellowshipping whatever way is necessary. And even though the Lord may be removing his hand of favor and protection, as I would say, as we're making it impossible for him to bless us. That's kind of my gut feeling. You know, he just, he can't endorse everything that we're doing. I'm sorry to say. So as that happens... He certainly can bless individual fellowships, and it might even come down to individual families. So, um, you know, the more, as time goes on, I've, I've basically I'm saying pretty much fast food doesn't cross these lips anymore. And, and uh, it's funny, I, I mentioned a few years ago, sometimes I get a hankering for like the Baconator or something like that. The trouble now, I'm so sensitive to it. If I have a Baconator, I'm, I'm usually Baconated for the next two days afterward. And, 
and I'm down and out. And I was just talking with Scott, too, downstairs, and he was saying the same thing. Just as we kind of pull away from this stuff, it, it can outdo me. And I was laughing because I, I had, told, like I told him, we had a lunch brought in today at our office. And, and, um, and so sometimes I get that sweet tooth going, and I had a couple of cookies. I was so tired. I was so lethargic afterward. And uh, thank the Lord I was able to perk up. But, but um, anyway, you know, it's just basically that, that's just kind of one illustration where um, we may see the Lord's favor being removed, but still we can bless one another through, through fellowship here. It's kind of interesting if you read Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 sometimes, that, that might be a good study just to kind of see what you think of our country. Deuteronomy 28 has the blessings and the cursings. The blessings for Israel if they follow the Lord, the cursing if they don't follow the Lord. Same thing with Leviticus 26, the blessings and the cursings. And it's, it's really up to us what we end up doing. But Leviticus 26, 26 says, you shall, not, you shall eat your bread and not be satisfied. And I, I think about sort of the medical condition of Americans where we're, where we just, it's just, we're constant, our bodies are actually looking for the nutrition, but they're not getting it. And so, um, and so anyway, that's, that's why I kind of bring all this up. And my concern is, I think all of us know things are going to be getting tougher down the road. And my concern is if we're in a, in somewhat of a bad position already, then things are going to be that much tougher for us down the road. There's an article that I have here too, which this, this is something else that we can factor in. I wasn't planning on mentioning this, except it just came out today by a reputable news source, which anybody is welcome to make a copy of. But this kind of, I don't know, this almost seems like the book of Daniel where they had to refuse certain foods, something like that. But I don't know if anyone else saw it, but it says that major food corporations use tissue from aborted babies to manufacture flavor additives and processed foods. Has anyone else heard this? I've followed this for about three years now where basically, and, and I wasn't sure and I tried to research what I could, but I had heard about it where certain products were having aborted tissue, aborted baby tissues placed in them as a food additive, which seems crazy, I, I know. What I believe it is, and I don't know for sure, but it seems like they could find another sweetener aside from aborted babies, but that's, that's what it is, and anybody is welcome to look at this and research it for yourself. It's, it's hard to believe, but I almost believe it to be some sort of a, a cult introduction. The more people that they can, they can get performing occult practices and desensitizing us to that, then, um, then they're, they're going to have their way. The priests of Baal, you know, they're that's the priest of Baal type of occultic activity. So it's hard to even fathom what level of wickedness could be going on that we don't even know about it, but I have it here. And that's one other thing that kind of comes to mind as far as us, us fellowshipping with one another. And I don't know, maybe we'll end up growing food together or something like that. I'm not sure. My wife just bought a book on uh, a gentleman who... He holds several world, a number of world records for growing like the largest plants, things like that, where he grew the Guinness Book of, of Records. It's a 28-foot tomato plant, and he's grown like 18-pound radishes, huge cucumbers, 17-foot corn, just amazing things. So 
I don't know what we'll end up seeing. It, it was actually, because I was focused on this, I couldn't start reading that book, but I, I really wanted to. But, you know, I think about how the Lord preserved Elijah supernaturally, and then Elijah provided for the widow. So we may see some wild things as we get closer to the end. The Lord will have his way, and he will find ways to preserve the faithful remnant and praise the Lord. So all the things that we're doing are, are a lot of funny. The, the, uh, the thing that I think bothers me the most that I'm seeing now is the doctor, there's a doctrinal shallowness in, in modern teaching. This strikes me as sort of the bread without nutrition. That's, that's why I wanted to use that analogy as well. Just like we're getting food that's really not nutritious and it makes us lethargic. We're getting, there's a lot of spiritual sort of filler out there that's not really substantial and it's not really providing the nutrition. Praise the Lord for, for Pastor Tim teaching from the Word and Pastor Randy and and remaining centered around the Word. Praise the Lord for that. But what I'm hearing on, on radio, seeing on TV, different things like that, it's it doesn't end well. I heard just yesterday, I heard... I heard someone say on the radio, think less, trust more. That doesn't end well, folks. We are called to be thinking people. We are called to study the word and to know the word as much as we can. That kind of attitude, if you've been walking with the Lord several years and that's the depth of your doctrine is to think less, trust more, we've got to correct that. There's What I'm noticing with a lot of the teaching and a lot of the sort of what I would call the almost not necessarily emergent type churches, but just there's a lot of of uh, very superficial teaching that seems to be centered around catchy jargon, um, emotionalism, things like that, without the true depth of the word as to where the as far as how deep the word goes. and the, the Bible encourages us to study the word like that. So that's Satan's greatest deception is getting us to to focus on the wor- world and neglecting the guardianship of our priesthood. And this is the last point, uh, just addressing kind of the, the sluggishness and sleepiness that, that is in the church. By the way, the more, the more sleepy the church becomes, or the people of God in general, the more sleepy and unaware we become, that in and of itself is a sign that the end is approaching quickly. So the, the sleepier people get, the closer you are to to the culmination of things. So that in and of itself is a sign. What does night and darkness represent to y'all in the Bible? What does what make what do y'all think of with that? Evil. You know, when you see night, when you see the darkness, especially like in places in the Old Testament, it's a foreshadowing of of evil kind of ruling the day and evil taking over culminating in the Great Tribulation, the period after the, the abomination of desolation, culminating in that, that's sort of the grand culmination, as wicked and evil as, as you could possibly imagine. So that's what, that's what you see with the night and the darkness. You see, for example, Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord at night, but he has to wrestle all night. That's a picture of Israel. Israel is going to struggle with the Lord throughout the entire Great Tribulation to daybreak, just as Jacob did. So it's a picture. Israel would ha- is going to have to be wrestling with the Lord in the same way that Joseph kind of punished his, his brothers or disciplined his brothers sort of very one-on-one, very personally. The Lord is going to be handling Israel very personally, but they're going to resist. 
through the entire night, through the entire great tribulation, but somewhere in there, he's, you know, he's going to, the Lord will prevail. Israel will be preserved through that, but that's a picture of, of what the, the night is speaking of. It's, it's a foreshadowing of the great tribulation. Also, with, with Jesus' parable of the ten virgins, we see the same thing. It's at nighttime. They're all sleeping. Five were wise, five foolish. Five got their oil, five didn't. But you see it at night, and you see that the, that the ones have the oil in the, in the lamp, and they're prepared. The other ones are not, and the ones that, that aren't ready, he comes in the night, and he surprises them. So that's a pattern as well. Same thing with the disciples. What happens? The disciples, those who are closest to Jesus, they're asleep in the garden. They can't even stay up with him as he's praying. Not that I would be able to either. I'm not pointing fingers. It's just a sign of, of people don't realize how close they may be to the end. And so, but that, in a sense, that's a sign. As God's people fall asleep, that's a sign that the end is getting closer. And it may be 20, 30, 50 years. I'm not saying it's imminent, but things do seem to be moving very quickly too. So it, it's tough to say. I don't think anyone could stay, say for sure, but we all need to be prepared. The Song of Solomon is the last example regarding this. And this is a fascinating book. If you haven't read it, I think it's actually one of the most technical and the most prophetic books you could read in the Bible. And I think for me, it's one of the most difficult ones, trying to keep track of whom is who. But one thing about it is I think it's often disregarded as a book of prophecy, but it is a book of prophecy. And I think it's just kind of disregarded as anything really important, except it is. It's extremely important. We see the, the woman who's the Shulamite, and she's sort of torn between two lovers. She has a shepherd lover, and she has another one, sort of the man of the world versus the, versus the Lord himself. So she's kind of torn. She's a picture of God's people, sort of torn between two people, and she can't make up her mind about, the, about her shepherd lover, the, which is the picture of the Messiah. And so in Song of Solomon 4, verse 6, we see that he actually goes to the mountain of Myrrh. And what that means is he is willing to die for his bride. So he loves her. He goes to the mountain of Myrrh. He's willing to die for her. In Song of Solomon 5, verse 2, he's calling her. So he comes to her door. She's in bed. He's knocking at the door, and she's in bed. Remember what Jesus says in Revelation? He knocks at the, at the door, correct? So this is a picture of the Messiah. He's knocking. His hair is wet. Some people think that may be an indication. It's the time of the latter rain in Israel. You have two rains. You have an early rain, and then you have a latter rain, the latter rain being associated with harvest. So I believe that's probably true, where the Messiah is knocking at the door for his people, He's, he's out there, he's calling her to come out and enjoy the harvest, and she's in bed, and she can't be bothered, basically. She, he's basically knocking. She says, I've already taken off my coat, my feet are washed, I can't really help you, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm pretty tired, I'm pretty cozy right now, so I don't really feel like coming out. But then she seems to kind of stir a little bit and wake up a little bit, so she goes to the door to open the door, but he's gone, importantly, but she touches the door, the myrrh is on the handle, and so suddenly her hands are dripping with myrrh. So it's kind of like this, where she's been, she touches the handle, suddenly she's the one that's appointed for burial. That's what that's saying, where 
she missed the coming of the Messiah. Now she's the one that's appointed for burial. And the people that aren't ready are going to suffer the same fate. If you're not coming for the Lord, if you go along with the, the harlot church and you miss the rapture, same kind of thing is going to happen. And that's what happened. So then she kind of, she says, hey, I need to go find him. She goes out into the night, into the city, and the watchman beat her. That's a picture of what's going to happen for the people that miss the rapture and, and sort of the part of the church that they talk the talk, but they don't really have a strong walk with the Lord. That's a foreshadowing of that where she's now the one that's, that's appointed for the burial and the Messiah is gone. Same thing that happens to the five unprepared virgins. They also are punished. Same thing with the harlot in Revelation 17. The, basically the Antichrist, the beast system, he hates her, the kings hate her, they destroy her flesh. So it's going to be easy initially to go on with that big Babylon harlot church. It's going to be easy to go along with them. In the end, it's, it doesn't end well. And so that's Satan's deception. He's trying to get the Shulamite woman to love the world, and she's, she's torn between the two. And she does come to her senses, and she embraces her lover, basically, at that time. And back to Mary Magdalene in the garden, if you think about her for a second, it's very interesting to me because, again, back to the picture of the woman in the garden, same thing with the Shulamite. She comes to her senses. She comes back to her lover in the garden. Then you have Mary Magdalene. She's going to embrace John when she realizes that he's risen from the dead. She, it seems like she wants to embrace him, and he says, don't, don't touch me, I have to go. But you know, she, she's very, very happy to see him. Of course, we all would be. And so it's very interesting just seeing... I think Mary being sort of a picture of that very faithful, small, even if it's a small people or a small group of people really, truly loving the Lord, Mary's a picture of that. Interestingly enough, Song of Solomon would have been what Mary just heard several hours before because that's one of the Passover scriptures. That's what they read at Passover. So Mary would have just heard that, and she would have, in a sense, fulfilled that going to grab the Messiah and um, and she probably didn't know that she was actually fulfilling that, but that's a great picture for all of us as well. So we know that the Lord is going to restore all things. Praise God. And the fellowship is going to be restored. Just in summarizing, we know that fellowship can have many forms. We're all accountable, but for all of us, we need to guard our priesthood and preserve the gospel and protect the gospel by studying the word. I hope our, our fellowship always remains centered around the word of God because there's a lot there that we need to study, a lot that we need to know. We know that the Lord will restore all fellowship in his time, but for now we have work to do. For the gentlemen too, within the next several weeks, we're probably going to be having a, a, a study out at our place we did it once before, and we're looking to do it again as well, where sort of a follow-up to that. And basically, I want to make it an intensive time of Bible study of, of us understanding the times, to understand what's going on, what we need to know. So, gentlemen, there will be an email about that. I'll stay up into the wee hours of the night if necessary. And intensive is kind of the key word, because I think we need to really know and really study hard and 
put a number of ideas out on the table and dissect the stuff and compare everything to the Word of God. And ladies, certainly, this is just a starting point. If, if you have interest, please let us know, too, because we could always do something here at the church as well. So just uh, we're just going to do a follow-up to the one that we already did with the gentleman at our place, and there will be an email about that. But we want everyone to be included. And just let me know if you're interested in, in doing something like that or Pastor Randy, Pastor Tim, anything like that, if it's something that, that you're interested in. My focus is studying the scriptures from the, the Hebraic perspective. I think sometimes we lose some things when we think of these things as Westerners, but trying to understand the, the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew mindset with these things really helps to illum illuminate um, the scriptures and what they're saying. With that, let's go ahead and uh, close out in prayer, please. Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your wonderful word, how it guides us, Lord. We're so thankful for your instruction to us, Lord God. Thank you for fellowship, Lord. It's something that you have ordained and you bless us through. We thank you for that. And we pray that you would continue to strengthen our fellowship. Lord, let you always be the focus, we pray. And um, Lord, that you would preserve your faithful remnant, Lord. And we don't want to just assume that we're the faithful remnant, but Lord, we, we will strive to be faithful to your word, Lord, and to uphold your name and your glory, even to the end of the age, Lord. Please be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.